with the aftermath of the Freedom Convoy, the trucker convoy that took over downtown Ottawa for weeks. Let's check in with the man who was part of that convoy. He now regrets being part of it. Martin Angelhart, I'm very pleased to welcome him to the show. Martin, thank you for coming on this morning. Uh, my life. Hey, Martin, thanks for coming on, man. Appreciate it. Martin, no problem. Martin, why did you decide to join up the, on the in the trucker convoy in the first place? Well, first of all, was loneliness, and second of all, my friend, my only friend in life, and my business partner died in June twenty twenty of uh, cancer, and they told me because I wasn't family, I wasn't allowed to go see him in the hospital. So he died alone in the hospital bed. So I was pretty much in honor of him. Yeah, and did you agree, like, when you decided to join up in this convoy, did you, like, agree with the uh, with the cause? Or you were against the vaccine mandates? Is that why you decided to participate? Well, I I believe in freedom, so everybody should yeah. have a freedom of choice. So, and I was dealing pretty much loneliness and, like, pretty much everything. So, verge of depression and pretty much everything. So, yeah, I, I needed to do something pretty much to change my life and do something to help people. Right. So you so you drove to Ottawa. Did you drive your SUV or did you have a truck? Uh, no, I had a Dutch caravan with the lettering of my company on it. So it okay. like one. So and, and did you and did you end up parking your vehicle in downtown Ottawa there with all the other truckers? No, I found I found it useless to honk. Uh, at the people, it's like somebody standing outside the parliament with a sign. I just wanted to help. So for three weeks, I deliver fuel, laundry, Costco, restaurant, everything for trucker for three weeks. Until I got arrested. Oh, oh, oh you got arrested. Okay. What yeah, happened? I got arrested, pepper spray, and uh, apparently it's illegal to deliver people fuel. <laughs> yeah. Okay. So now you say you regret being part of the convoy. Why do you regret it now? Well, I, I, I had to sell my computer just to buy my meds like three weeks ago. I lost my house. I live in the small car for the past month. I baby wiped myself. I have nothing left in life. <laughs> how, did, so, why did, how did you lose your house? Why did that happen? Because the police kind of called my landlord to verify my address. And my landlord kind of freaked out because he didn't agree with my... We had a month-to-month agreement, and I was supposed to uh, take care of the place and not cause any trouble. And when you get a call from the Ottawa police or the OPP, he's like, oh, my my tenant got arrested. And he called me and said, look, I don't want trouble in my place. And I tried to explain to him, and he didn't agree with my my point of view or what yeah. I did. So. Okay, speaking of Martin Angel Hart, he was part of the truck convoy in Ottawa. He regrets that. Now, Martin, did they ever, uh, the government ever freeze your bank account? Did that happen to you too? Yeah, it's, uh, I wrote a, I wrote a blog. It's called freedomtocanada.com with all the information. Yeah, my account is still frozen. Oh, you still can't get in your bank account? Oh, no, I, I still oh. can't. Uh, I went to the bank and they said it might take up to three months before, like, everything can be unfreeze. <laughs> oh, man. Okay. And I know you, you said you're out of a lot of money. You, you lost your home. You're living out of your out of your van, your truck. Like, how much money did you lose as being part of this thing? Well, well $13,000, my Dutch caravan, maybe a, and everything that was in my house, maybe twenty k. 20k wow so that was money that what you donated to 
their cause? Well, I donated. Uh, we had a sheet in Ottawa where we had one sheet we were supposed to sign to respect the peace, and the second sheet was supposed to be for a refund. So, yeah. Okay, so, so everything. Okay, so you're out a lot of money. You now say you regret being part of this. Like, do you regret it now because because of what's happened in your life, like losing your house or, and, and, and losing all that money? Do you regret that part of it, or do you regret being part of a cause that, that turned out? I don't out- regret being a part of a cause. Okay. For the first time in three years, a Canadian became Canadian. It's, it, I don't know if you have a Google in front of you. There's a... I wrote a blog when I left Ottawa, and it's got like all the video, my arrest, everything, my bank, and it's called uh, Freedom Freedom Number Two Canada dot com. But I don't regret. I I don't regret. I regret the aftermath after that. Like yeah, I regret getting arrested and my window smashed and like handcuffed because I tried to do the right thing to help people. I regret my account is frozen. I regret I'm sleeping in the car. I slept in the car for the past month, and sometimes a minus 40 with no gas. I, how am I supposed to not have regrets, right? Yeah. I have nothing left. Right. So if you could go back in time, you, you would not do it over. You would not have gone to Ottawa. Is that right? No. Okay. If I could see the future, I would have never gone to Ottawa. I would still be in my house. I would still be lonely. I would still have no friends, but I would have had everything, and now... I have nothing. I yeah. I went for a job interview and they told me that I they don't hire homeless people because I look like crap. And they told me a Salvation Army would be better suited for me, even if I have a PhD in computer sciences. Speaking of Martin Angel Hart, he was part of the Ottawa truck convoy. He lost his home, lost a ton of money uh, being part of it. He was arrested. His bank account was frozen. So, Martin, do you think that? Like looking back on it now, you say you still you agreed with the with the the principles of it, the the goal, the stated goals of the protest. Do you think though that it turned out to be something you didn't anticipate? Like, did you think you were going to get arrested, or did you think this was going to drag on for three weeks? And I, I honestly, I didn't know. Like, the only thing I know is driving across Canada for the like the first week. Like when I followed the convoy, I realized this is where it's getting bigger. There was, I think it was bringing people hope in Canada, yeah. hope that in, in better days. And there was people in Winnipeg and all over Saskatchewan, like thousands of people on the side of the highway with flag at minus 40. I'm like, wow. And when we get to Ottawa, we were only like 500 trucks. And the first week that follows, we became about 50,000 people in downtown Ottawa. So... Yeah. I never thought it would drag on like this, but it became a free fall, basically. And I mean, do you it, think? Do you it, think? Uh, do you think it got out of hand in any way? Like maybe you thought that the cause was right, and you agreed with it, and you thought it was a just cause. But when they basically occupied downtown Ottawa, and a lot of the people who live in those neighborhoods were tormented by honking horns and diesel fumes for week after week after week. I mean, did you think that's what it was going to be? <laughs> Honestly, I, I didn't. I didn't have expectation. And see, my my point of view is I always tried to do everything right in my in my life, like in the past. But the thing is, is I tried to please everybody, and I I apologize for the people in Ottawa. And I, I, I see. I'm just a simple man living a simple life, and I I'm not organizer. I'm not like I'm not the type of guy that will like you know do crazy stuff i just wanted to help people with the yeah. of my heart 
All right, Martin, I appreciate you coming on today and sharing your story, man. I, thanks a lot for doing it. Hey, no problem. And if you have time, just read my blog, freedomtocanada.com. All right, welcome back. As we continue talking about the aftermath of the trucker convoy in Ottawa, I heard my conversation there with Martin Angelhart. He was one of the protesters in the truck convoy. He says he regrets it now. He got arrested. His bank account was frozen. He's out 20000 bucks. He lost his home. He's living in his truck. Kyla Lee is a Vancouver criminal defense lawyer. I'm very pleased to welcome her back to the show. Hey, Kyla. Hi, Mike. Thanks for having me. Kyla, thanks a lot for coming on. What do you think of this guy's story? Do you have any sympathy for him? I mean, I do. I do. (laughs) I'm human, and it's very hard to hear about people essentially becoming homeless as a result of this. But at the same time, in the period of time when he was down there, you know, delivering gas and doing all of this, the actions were illegal. It was made very clear to the public and to the people there that they couldn't be doing this activity. And he knowingly made a decision to break the law, and there are consequences for that. Let's see what people think about it on the open line here. Kyle on the line in Surrey. Hi, Kyle. What do you think? Hey, how's it going? I, I agree with Kyla there. Like, I, I sympathize with the man not having, you know, the basic necessities to, to, to live a decent life right now. But he did have a chance to leave, and he didn't take that chance. So am I really, you know, am I really sympathetic towards the guy? I mean, I'm sympathetic towards the fact he doesn't have anything. But other than that, he did it to himself. Yeah, thank you for the call. It's interesting, Kyla, to see a, a tweet this week from Paul Champ, who is an Ottawa lawyer. He is the lawyer who's leading that class action lawsuit against the organizers of the truck convoy. They're seeking millions of dollars in compensation for the residents of Ottawa that went through this. And he's he's been talking about this story of Martin Angelhart, and he, he calls it a sad story. And he also says that the organizers of the convoy were, were grifters, and that the big money and organizers of, of the of the blockade and the convoy should be held accountable in that class action. Do you agree with that? I do think so. You know, a lot of these people became essentially innocent dupes. It even sounded from what Mr. Angelhart was saying today that they were promised to be reimbursed for the money they were expending supporting these convoy people, and now that's never happening. Right, yeah. They told him to make sure you keep track of all your expenses. Let's talk to Maria on the open line calling from Toronto. Hi, Maria. Hello, how are you doing? I'm fine. What do you think? Good. So I, uh, I'm a photographer, and I spent three weeks in Ottawa documenting the convoy. Didn't know what to expect. I just went in there to see what was going on. I thought it was a good photo opportunity. And uh, I must say that it was it was truly the most unifying um, experience that I've ever been a part of. Think every single Stanley Cup gold medal winning game, every Canada Day all combined times 100. Um, you thought it was, a, you thought it was a good thing? Absolutely. What about the people who were what about the people who were living there and living with it for weeks on end? So it wasn't actually for weeks on end because how many, how many weeks was it? <laughs> no, but the honking did stop at one period of time. Um, okay. So I was expecting it to be in gridlock the entire downtown Ottawa core. I thought it was going to be in gridlock, and it wasn't. Um, I was driving around in Ottawa. You can still drive within the city. Wellington was closed, all of Wellington. That's right across the Parliament. But you can still drive within the city. There's emergency lanes for vehicles. What about um, what about the, what about this poor guy? Everything has happened to him. Like he's been wiped out twenty thousand bucks, lost his job, got arrested. His bank account still frozen. He's living out of his truck. You know? Do you have any sympathy for him? He says he wish he hadn't done it. Now. 
So, yeah, I, I mean, I think it's unfortunate that it even had to happen. Um, but to be completely honest, I think that freedom has a price. I have a standard full-time nine-to-five job, and I'm certain that if they knew I was out there, it might cause some issues too. But for me, I think that um, the sacrifice that people are willing to make, yeah. um, the, the long-term implications of not doing anything exceed any sort of short-term issues okay um, Mar- okay maria th- thank you very much for the call i appreciate it well i mean this is a guy who when he looks at the price that he has paid he wishes he wasn't paying the price now i mean it sounds like some other people might be saying this was the price they were willing to pay this guy's looking back on it now and he's, he's very regretful about it darren and sumas darren go ahead you got 30 seconds yeah hey mike i just want to agree with kyla and the uh, first caller there um he fully well knew what he was getting into um Hindsight's twenty twenty, and he plays stupid games, and you're going to win stupid prizes. So that's my bit. Okay, Darren, thanks for call. Susan in North Van, we'll squeeze in one more. Susan, you got to go quick. Go ahead. Okay, quickly, I agree with the lawyer, and as far as that photographer is concerned about thank, thanking everybody for what they did, why doesn't she thank the nurses and the doctors and everybody mm. else that were really in there with, okay. with helping people? Not people that were in there. They weren't talking freedom for me thank I'm you thank compromised. you thank I'm you the- susan for thank you susan for the call I hate to step on you there we're just out of time kyla in 20 seconds here do you think this class action lawsuit could succeed i do think that it could succeed i think that yeah. there's a really strong basis for it and um you know these people were involved in illegal activity it caused harm to other people that's a, a perfect basis to recover funds kyla thank you for coming on today thanks for having me All right, welcome back to the show and the breaking news at this hour. The gas price relief just announced by Premier John Horgan. Are you ready for this? $110. That's your ICBC rebate. 110 smackers. That's your relief for these sky-high gas prices. If you're a commercial driver, you got a commercial ICBC policy, you get $165. This is one-time relief payment, one-time only, 110 bucks. That gets you, what, one fill-up, maybe? Let's check in with Peter Millobar, Liberal MLA, Kamloops, North Thompson. Peter, thanks for coming on. You betcha. Glad to be on. Peter, your thoughts on this rebate? Well, let's remember this rebate uh, sounds like it's not going to be out for two months as well because they, they've said May. I noticed they didn't say early May. So, um, you know, it took uh, over a week and a half to, to get this announcement today. And it's very clearly an announcement around uh, rebating ICBC premiums. It has nothing to do with relief at the pumps. Um, the Premier has said for four years he had a plan to relief the prices at the pumps and he still is not showing us what that plan is. What do you think about that figure, $110? I mean, what is that going to do for anyone? I mean, that's like one fill-up, maybe. Well, I don't think with uh, record unaffordability right now, any homeowner or policyholder is going to disagree with getting a check for $110. I think they were expecting something more out of the premier today. Uh, perhaps a rebate check with some sort of strategy to deal with the overall prices at the pumps. Uh, but they've kind of mixed the two together in terms of uh, what they were charging for insurance. Uh, let's face it, they increased uh, premiums about 25% before they dropped them by 20. Uh, and at the same time as dropping them, they've uh, dropped your coverage. And we're hearing the horror stories of, of uh, no fault right now starting to come out as, as people are starting to access that system. So 
um, you know, this is this is simply them trying to uh, get out of what they're obviously getting bad polling numbers on, and, and trying to figure out a way to to try to change the dial. Do you think the ICBC could have been in a position here to give a more generous rebate rather than just a hundred and ten dollars? They are raking in profit over there, one point five billion dollars profit last year. billion profit this year. That's $3.4 billion in profit in just two years. And this rebate will cost them $395. So that's what, about 10% of the profits they've raked in. Like they could have, they could have given a bigger rebate check, could they have not? Well, I think that was the expectation, and certainly it's it's interesting to hear the Premier talk about the volatility of what's going on in world markets right now, and this rebate is a result, according to the Premier, of investments made. So there, there's still volatility even within uh, ICBC. I, I would note that uh, no one from ICBC was anywhere near this announcement, so it's very clear what happened. The, the Premier had polling that showed him that uh, he wasn't doing anything to address uh, gas prices and and uh, skyrocketing costs across the board. Um, he felt he needed to be in front of a podium to try to make a good news announcement. And so they're, they're returning money to ICBC policyholders who should have reasonably expected that money to be returned either in the form of a check or lower premiums next they year. Could, and, they um, could have, I think they could have easily afforded a, a more generous rebate. I mean, they're sitting on so much money over there. They are required to have reserves capital reserves on hand we understand that i get it you have to have reserves but they have got so much money that's being raked in here right now they could have given a bigger rebate than 110 bucks come on and are they peter are they giving this rebate to you people who drive an electric car uh, that's my understanding. Of course, uh, no fine detail was, was given today, but one would think if it's a policyholder, it's a policyholder. And so, um, you know, that that's going to be a question moving forward, uh, I guess, in terms of that. Uh, you know, ultimately, though, what, what people are saying is, uh, across the board, they're finding their costs increasing um, incredibly fast right now, and, and zero response from a government that, that is uh, purported to be all about affordability and watched everything skyrocket under their watch. And so, uh, be it uh, the non-existent renter's rebate that's been promised, be it the four years of promise of, of uh, relief at the pumps from the premium that hasn't been delivered on the, upon, uh, the bungling of the wallet of childcare and affordable childcare for people trying to stay in the job market, um, you name it, there's there's been problems, and they finger point. Today, the the the, the problem was uh, Vladimir Putin by the Premier. He never seems to want to take responsibility for anything that he's promised to do. What should they have done? Like, if the Liberals were in power right now, what, you'd be cutting a bigger rebate check? You'd be slashing gas taxes like they did in Alberta? Like, what, what do you think he should have done? Well, it was good that the very tail end, the Premier finally came clean. They keep saying that uh, the day after Alberta announced the the tax reduction, that prices went up 14 cents. Well, the tax reduction doesn't take effect in Alberta till April 1st. Yeah. And so, yeah. they, you know, the Premier finally acknowledged that at the end after trying to tie the two together repeatedly, uh, him and Minister Ralston. But let's let's be clear. We have the, the carbon uh, action tax credit that could be uh, accessed right away. We, the checks could have been out by April 5th, even if it was announced today. It's a very fast turnaround program that was created, um, you know, while while Kevin Falcon was around. They like to what take pro- shots of our new pro- leader. So, what program is that you're talking about? 
there's a there's a carbon action tax credit program that can be accessed very quickly. It's designed uh, to to move uh, dollars back into people uh, wallets very quickly. It can be income tested and and thresholded. Um, that could have had a turnaround of, of literally a matter of weeks. And instead, we're hearing sometime in May. Uh, so let's see. We've we've started uh, the the hike of gas prices since at least January. Uh, sometime in May, you'll see 110 dollars come your way. I mean, it's ridiculous for the premier to think that that is what people were expecting today after waiting a week and a half build up for today's uh, grand announcement. At the same time, exactly one week from today, the carbon tax is scheduled to go up. So a lot of people were hoping for a gas tax cut in BC like they did in Alberta. In fact, gas taxes are going in the other direction in British Columbia. They are going up one week from today. Do you think that on the on the carbon tax, do you think a carbon tax freeze should have been considered or a tax reduction? Well, it's interesting when uh, when COVID first started, the first thing Carol James did was freeze carbon tax. Uh, it was supposed to go up that in that year's budget, and, and she made a quick decision to freeze carbon tax. Uh, as a way to try to uh, make things a little bit more affordable for people in British Columbia. Now you're hearing the Premier say the exact opposite. So I guess uh, he, his opinion of that seems to to uh, change depending who the, the finance minister is. Uh, the reality is we brought in the carbon tax. Uh, they campaigned against it quite aggressively. The Premier back in the day uh, was demanding that carbon tax be capped at two and a half cents a litre. Um, yeah. April 1st, he's going to add one cent a litre and, and shrugs it off as if it's nothing. Um uh, what we're saying is carbon tax should have always been, and the reason it was uh, an award-winning carbon tax around the world was because it was revenue neutral. The first act this government did, this premier did, was take away revenue neutrality uh, from the carbon tax, and that has been the fundamental difference uh, moving forward. Uh, they don't uh, return it to, to people in an appropriate way to try to offset these skyrocketing costs. Peter, thank you for coming on with your thoughts. Appreciate it. Great. Thank you. Anytime. All right, welcome back to the show. Let's talk about the 2030 Olympic Games now in Vancouver and Whistler considering going for this again. The last Olympics in Vancouver were a great party. Was it so nice? Should we do it twice? Lots of people say, let's go for it again. This is a great idea, a lot of people think. We've got a lot of those Olympic venues already built. We can do this for less money than last time. Let's go for it. Vancouver, Whistler, thinking about bidding for the 2030 Winter Olympic Games. This is very interesting. Local First Nations getting behind this idea now, saying this will be an Indigenous-led bid for the Olympic Games, uh, the first in history. It's got a lot of people excited. Now, here's the bottom line, though. Do the people of Vancouver deserve a say on this in a plebiscite to be held concurrently with the civic election this my next guest, Vancouver City Councillor uh, Colleen Hardwick, believes there should be a plebiscite. She is standing by to speak to me. Have a listen to this report first here from Global News. In early December, four First Nations announced they would lead the way in exploring a potential bid. The group is currently conducting a feasibility study. Musqueam Chief Wayne Sparrow says this idea is coming a little too late in the game. Quite taken back by it, and we're a little bit upset that this... Uh is anyone been entertained at this stage right now? Arguing the First Nations have already signed a Memorandum of Understanding, or MOU, with the city. A little bit upsetting. Uh, it's not consistent with the MOU that we signed with the city of Vancouver. Um, so if those comments came earlier, 
about wanting to go through this process would have been, uh, I think, would have been fair to the nations to identify that at the very beginning. Okay, you heard Musqueam First Nation Chief Wayne Sparrow there saying it's upsetting this idea of a plebiscite on whether Vancouver and Whistler should go for the Olympic Games. He says a plebiscite is not part of the deal that First Nations have with the cities of Vancouver and Whistler. Vancouver Mayor Kennedy Stewart also on the same page as the chief there saying that this idea for a plebiscite is counter to the memorandum of understanding that's been signed between First Nations and this city. My guest, Vancouver City Councillor Colleen Hardwick, though, thinks that we should have a plebiscite. Councillor, thank you for coming on today. Thank you for having me, Mike. Okay, Councillor, can you tell me about the idea for a plebiscite? Why do you think that we should do that? Well, uh, we had a vote in 2003 prior to the 2010 Games, and why would 2030 be any different? I don't really understand how anybody can be opposed to an open, transparent, and democratic process when it comes to hosting the 2030 Olympic Games. Uh, I don't know if you know, but in 2003, when the the plebiscite was held as a standalone event, 135,000 people voted, and it was a record turnout for a plebiscite. And those results made it clear that there was an incredible interest. And yes, people wanted their say. Yeah, no, they did. And I recall it very well. And I know a lot of people who supported the Olympic bid at that time were worried about that plebiscite. Ooh, maybe we shouldn't ask the people about this. What if they say no to it? And it, it passed like pretty enthusiastically, I recall, right? Yeah, it was like 65%. Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, but it cost... At the time, 20 years ago, almost 20 years ago, uh, over half a million dollars to do that standalone plebiscite. And when there was a separate vote taken in 2017 uh, uh, on an interim vote, it cost a million seven. But this time, by putting it on the ballot, it, you know, along with the, the capital plan, it won't cost anything. And I actually think it would act as a great incentive to get the vote out, to increase the vote in the yeah. city, because local voting rates are, are lower than senior levels of government, for example. Sure. sure, it might be a really good way to encourage people to get out and vote, for sure. Speaking to Vancouver City Councillor Colleen Hardwick, do you support the Olympic bid? I support um, having a plebiscite for the bill. Uh, My job, of course, is to represent the people of Vancouver. And so uh, in order to do that, you know, my job is is to hear what they have to say. So I'm really not putting my opinion one way or the other. I'm just one voice. Instead, this motion is about acknowledging that Vancouverites deserve to have their say. And it's hard for me to understand why an open uh, process of the people of Vancouver should be a a big issue, not supported by all of us. Well, let me ask you about your thoughts on Vancouver Mayor Kennedy Stewart. And I know you're running to be mayor in in the fall as well. And so is uh, Mayor Stewart running for re-election. And I see that he called you out on Twitter on this idea about a plebiscite, mm-hmm. letting people vote on an Olympic Games bid. He says that this this action, I'm quoting him directly here, this action violates the signed agreement between the governments of Vancouver and Whistler and the four First Nations who want to lead this bid. So what so, do you say to that? I say, look at the MOU and show me where it says that. Um, (laughs) I just so you know, I put this motion on notice at the last council meeting on March 1st in on, you know, on camera 
in public, I submitted it to staff for their comments and received full comments from staff on March 10th about their concerns with the motion. And nowhere was there any mention about the MOU or having this impact at all. Um, and so I made uh, the recommended changes to the motion accordingly and resubmitted them uh, for this council cycle. So um, first of all, this is, is not new news. Um, and again, it was vetted by staff. So I find this, that, and again, what I'm saying is that there's nothing in the MOU uh, having reviewed it, that suggests that this is in contravention of that MOU. So, uh, you know, add it up. It just doesn't add up. Okay, what do you say to the First Nations who want to be the leaders of this bid for the Olympic Games in 2030? This is a unique effort here. The Musqueam, Squamish, Tsleil-Waututh, Lilawat First Nations are saying, let us lead this. This will be the first Indigenous-led Olympic Games bid. That is a lot of people excited and a lot of people supporting that concept. And now they are saying, well, they don't like this idea of a plebiscite. You heard from uh, Musqueam Indian Band Chief Wayne Sparrow in that Global News report saying that they're very mm -hmm. upset about this idea. What do you say to him? Well, I am delighted that the First Nations are taking a leadership role on this. I think it's fantastic. I don't know why that precludes um, having an open and transparent process with the city of Vancouver and the roughly 600,000 people that uh, live here and will be affected by it, especially since there's a precedent. Uh, so um, I would think it would be consistent with the, the core values of, of the Olympics and uh, who do recommend plebiscites and who do build, recommend building consensus as First Nations emphasize the building of consensus and will be having elections among their own people. So I think it's consistent with the values. Um, and uh, again, if I had gone through a process with the city that had said, uh, no, you can't do this per the MOU, don't put this forward, I would not have done so. But that's yeah. not the case. Okay. it's. I find it interesting that there's a, a bid exploration committee called Vancouver 2030 that put out a release yesterday supporting you on this, saying that they we actually support this idea of a plebiscite. Um, the president of Vancouver 2030 and also the CEO said, yeah, this is consistent with what we want to do. I, I think a plebiscite is a good idea. What I'm trying to understand that. Like, why is there a bid committee called Vancouver 2030 that's supporting a plebiscite and the First Nations who want to lead the bid saying they're against the plebiscite? and the mayor's against the plebiscite. People seem to be on different pages here. Well, I wasn't aware of the Vancouver 2030 group until this all came down over the last couple of days. But they have been out there advocating to bring the Olympics back to Vancouver. Yeah. The, 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 the initiative to bring the Olympics back to Vancouver did not happen with the First Nations getting on board. It has been in the works for a while. This is the, the latest um, development, and again, one that I support. Um, so what the interesting thing about the Vancouver 2030 group is they have been out putting together petitions uh, in, uh, across the lower mainland, across the province, across the country to try and build the case to bring back the Olympics. And they understand uh, that it is the right thing to do to have yeah. a plebiscite. Um, at which is the case uh, around the world with the Olympics. So it is the right thing to do to have a plebiscite. It's the most efficient and cost-effective way to do it concurrent with our ballot in October. 
So I, again, as, as I said before, I don't know how anyone can be opposed to having an open, transparent, and democratic process right. when it comes to hosting the games. Right. Okay. So where does this go for you now? Is this a motion you're going to put in front of council to have this added to the ballot in the fall, a plebiscite on the Olympic? Yeah. Bit? So again, just so you understand the process, yeah. council um, puts motions on notice um, at the council meeting prior to, um, or sometimes multiple council cycles prior to. So I put this motion on notice at the end of the council meeting on March 1st. And then the next day I submitted the full text to staff for review. Staff got back to me on the 10th of March with their comments, nowhere in any of it referring to the MOU or any consideration thereof. I then took their comments and refined them into the final motion that I submitted, which is the one that uh, was was released on the city's website with the agenda this week. Right. So again, this is, is I have gone through the the process as laid out by the city, yeah. and nowhere along the line did anyone say, "Oh no, you can't do this." In fact, this has been our our historical practice going back to the 2003 um, uh, bid for for 2010, and right. it's the right thing to do. And when will that be in front of council now? It's scheduled to uh, come to council on Tuesday. Um, I okay. suspect there will be speakers, which means it will uh, carry over into Wednesday's standing committee meeting. Okay, very much looking forward to seeing how that goes. Thank you very much for coming on today. You're most welcome. All right, welcome back. Let's talk about the Liberal NDP power deal in Ottawa now. It is a team-up between Justin Trudeau and NDP leader Jagmeet Singh. The NDP agreeing to prop up the Trudeau government here for the next three years. Is this a good thing or a bad thing for Canada? Well, have a listen to this exchange in the House of Commons. This is Conservative leader Candace Bergen here going after Trudeau. My question to the leader of the new NDP Liberal Party is this. When did he start these secret talks with his new Deputy Prime Minister, the member for Burnaby South? Was it before, during, or just after the last election? Mr. Speaker, what we're going to see is an ability to work across party lines to reduce the toxic partisanship that we've seen in the past in this House and actually move forward on delivering concretely for Canadians. That's what Canadians want. That's what we're going to deliver. Okay, it's been a fiery time in the House of Commons since this deal was announced in Ottawa, redrawing a bit of the political landscape in our country. It is a supply and confidence agreement between the Trudeau Liberals and Jagmeet Singh's NDP. It will last through 2025. All right, let's discuss it now. What a great panel we've got for you, both sides of it. Joe Roberts is back. Joe is a columnist with the New Left on Substack. Very pleased to welcome him back. Hey, Joe. Always a pleasure, Mike. Thanks a lot for doing it. Also on the line, David Creighton. David is the senior parliamentary columnist for the Western Standard in Ottawa. I'm pleased to welcome him back, too. Hey, David. Hi, Mike. Nice to be back. All right, gentlemen, thank you to both of you for being here. Joe, let me go to you first. You've got a, a new column out on this for the new left. Do you think this is a good thing, right? Tell me why. It's a great thing. Look, I think this is what happens when politics works well, which it often doesn't. We can bemoan the, the failure of politics, but this is good politics at its best. You know, this is a supply and confidence agreement that will deliver confidence in droves for voters. Voters want two things out of government, Mike. They want a government that delivers on their promises 
which this deal does, and they want a government that can provide them some certainty in their lives, which this gives them for the next three years. No more back to the ballot box, no more questions when an election's going to fall on our head. This deal brings the bacon. Okay, David Creighton from the Western Standard. David, what do you think of this deal? Well, I'm, I'm fascinated by this deal because I don't think uh, liberal voters, for one, wanted socialism when they voted. And this is what this brings us. And I don't think NDP voters wanted to vote liberal. And I think I think they've both parties have betrayed their their core voters. What I'm most concerned about with this pact, and it really is a pact, is that Justin Trudeau is being given, being delivered the majority government. He didn't earn and didn't deserve. And I'm I'm not so much concerned about the socialism inherent in this in this with pharmacare and dental care that he's promised the NDP. I'm concerned that we have two elite governors now governing Canada, and we have two prime ministers in effect who both enacted, who both invoked the Emergencies Act, who are both very authoritarian, who both have political enemies lists, and who both like to go after those political enemies, and who both exhibited that. And I can tell you, there are fissures in the new Democratic Party, and I know who I know who they are, and I've talked to many of them, and they're usually the ones with white hair in the party. And uh, I grew up on Vancouver Island, and I knew a lot, and I had a lot of NDP friends who, and they're the old kind of new Democrats who are who usually support working class people, and they don't re- usually like the elite new Democrats who are running the party right now, and who okay. Jagmeet Singh represents. Okay, well, Joe, what do you think about that? Like, speaking of the, the, the old guys in the NDP, the guys with the white hair, I mean, I saw Ed Broadbent the other day out <laughs> talk about an elder statesman there appearing with Jagmeet Singh, and he seemed to think this was a really good deal. But, Joe, your thoughts? Yeah, Ed Broadbent said that he's never seen a better deal for the NDP with a sitting government than this deal. And I think it's important to think about that. What does that mean? This is a guy who sat in caucus with Tommy Douglas, this is, uh, you know, a leader who has pushed for these changes his whole career and has seen them now. You know, Tommy Douglas said once, he said, if you give me 50 MPs, we'll change Parliament. If you give me 100 MPs, we'll change Canada. And Jagmeet Singh is delivering with only 25 MPs what they would not have gotten any other way than through this deal. And yeah. I want to be really clear what yeah. this deal does, because it is, you know, it is a support a supply and confidence agreement only on the issues that are delivered in the deal. Anything that's not in the deal, any other, any other legislation, the NDP is allowed to oppose in the House, and they will oppose if it goes against their core values. But this brings together, you know, David said one thing I want to just be really clear on, that most of the voters of the Liberal Party and the NDP did not support this. But in a, in a survey, a poll by research company during the 2020 election, 2021 election, excuse me, Liberal and NDP voters, 70% of them said they would be happy with a minority government of liberals backed up by the NDP. So we are getting what voters intended, and we are okay. getting the policy that comes out of that. All right, David, what do you well, think of that? Like, Do you, do you think well, this is like, go ahead. I, for anyone who has a sense of history, and, I, and I'm not sensing that much of that right now, and Justin Trudeau seems to be uh, reminiscent of his father in two ways. He just invoked the Emergencies Act, just like his father invoked the War Measures Act recently. But his father uh, had a coalition government with the NDP exactly 50 years ago. In 1972, he had a coalition government with David Lewis's NDP. That turned out to be a disaster for the NDP, actually, because Pierre Trudeau came back with a majority government in 1974, and the NDP lost a whole bunch of seats in that election, largely because 
people say, well, why vote NDP? Because the liberals are just like the NDP. And this is exactly what's going to happen to Jagmeet Singh. He's, not, he's going to lose seats. He is going, and the NDP are going to be swallowed up by the mm. liberals because people are going to say, what's the difference? The Liberal Party is just like the NDP. And okay. that's the lesson to be learned right now. What's the difference between the Liberal under, under Justin Trudeau and the NDP under Jagmeet Singh? They're the same hey. party. Hey, Joe, let me ask you this just before we fit in a break here, guys. Uh, a point that David made about what he describes as socialism, that we have socialism in, in Canada now with this deal. How do you, I mean, as a guy on, uh, writes on the left of the spectrum here, like, is that how you see it? Is this like socialism through the back door with, with these big, massive national health care programs that are being rolled out? Your thoughts? Look, social policy, this is social uh, social safety net. This is the stuff that voters wanted. 50.4% of Canadian voters cast a ballot for either the Liberals or the NDP. One in five voters voted NDP. This was all in the platform. Nothing that's being delivered was not promised by one of the two election platforms. So we're getting what we wanted. This is what Canadians asked for. We're getting it. And it's okay. good policy. I mean, you think about it down at its core. This is delivering dental care and pharma care for people who desperately need those things. Yeah, David, what do you say to that? I think most Canadians also want tax cuts. You can, it, the polling, the, the answer to polling it always depends on how you ask the question. And, and Canadians want one thing at the same time, want two things at the same time. Now, most Canadians also want deep tax cuts. Most Canadians want, want freedom of speech, which is something the NDP and the Liberals don't want to give us either. So we'll, if you want to talk polling questions and answers, we can do, we can do that as well. All right, talking about the NDP liberal power deal in Ottawa with my guest, Joe Roberts, columnist for The New Left, David Creighton, senior parliamentary columnist for The Western Standard. Lots of calls here. Don in Vancouver. Hi, Don, go ahead. You know, everybody votes for a party. You get a certain percentage vote for each party. One for the liberals, one for the conservatives, and so on and so on. And when we get a collaboration or, or an agreement to work together to do something, we get a greater percent of the population kind of agreeing to something. And that's, I think, the way Canada needs to work. Because a lot of times we get like a low minority group pushing policy for the majority. So, okay, so do you, are you for or against the deal? All for, 100%. You're, you're for it. Okay, thank you for that. Like, a lot of people, Joe, have been saying, oh, this is a travesty of democracy. I mean, this is not exactly, like, unprecedented. We've seen these type of parliamentary deals before, but your thoughts? Well, sure. You know, right there in, in British Columbia, you, you saw one at the provincial yeah. level uh, sure. just before this this government. So these things are normal. This uh, You go to places around the world, it happens uh, in Europe very regularly. This is how power agreements are made. This is how policy gets done, which at the end of the day, you know, to the caller's point, that's exactly what voters want. They don't care about politics. They want to know what we're going to deliver on and how we're going to improve their lives. Okay. okay, David Creighton, do you agree on that, that this is, this is the way well, parliamentary democracy works and functions? Well, I think people vote for a party and they, and they expect that vote to count for something. I'm not saying this is the first time in history this has happened. I just, I just specifically mentioned the, the coalition government in 1972, and we've seen them more recent than that. What I'm saying is that this is, we are experiencing right now a profound political realignment of politics in Canada because the NDP specifically and the Liberals are ignoring the working class vote in Canada, and it is going increasingly towards the conservatives. And this is what we witnessed during the Freedom Convoy protest. Trudeau had nothing but contempt for those working class truckers 
who were in Ottawa, and Jagmeet Singh had nothing but contempt for them, dismissing them oh. as Nazis and white supremacists. How come they can't form government then? If they're getting all the support from the working class, how come they never win? They never win. They are going to win the next election because they're going to represent a clear choice. In the last election under Aaron O'Toole, the conservatives were no different than the liberals or the NDP, and there was no clear choice in that election. Okay, let's go to Gary on the line in East Vancouver. Hi, Gary, go ahead. Good morning, fellas. Uh, being from East Vancouver, I guess you know where our family ties have, uh, have always been for po- politics. But uh, I kind of lost it when this joker had to parachute over 4,000 kilometers away to get elected because they wouldn't even elect him in, in, where he even come from in Ontario. Now, this is very uh, uh, timely because my wife and I have just got back from the lawyers. We've changed our will. The NDP get nothing now, as far as I'm concerned. And, as, uh, and I can hardly wait until they all get issued their Liberal Party cards. I'm fed up with the whole ball of wax of them. Okay, well, Singh, maybe... I, I wish Mr. Singh would yeah. just go back to Ontario where he belongs. Okay, well... Um... Joe, your thoughts? I mean, uh, Jugmeet Singh is a Metro Vancouver MP here now. Uh, do you think that this, this deal could backfire in the NDP or no? No, absolutely not. Again, I think this is about delivering, and this is what Jugmeet Singh and the NDP caucus is doing. They're leveraging their power in the, in the House of Commons to make real substantive change and deliver on policy that they promised in their election platform. Look, if it wasn't for this deal, NDP policy platform pieces, especially dental care and pharmacare, which liberals voted no on just a year ago, would not be happening and we're getting them. And I think it's important to think about all of the other things that they're delivering on in this who, that don't make the top lines of the papers, you know, expanding democracy, fairer tax system, truth and reconciliation. A lot of the things that they've been promising and that NDP voters and, by the way, again, the majority of can, the Canadian electorate have demanded. Yeah. Let's go to Rick on the line in Port Moody. Hi, Rick. Go ahead. Hi, gentlemen. Thanks for taking my call. You know what? It's clear that Canadian politics has been moving more and more into really a two-party system. The Liberals have been going further, further left. The NDP have kind of stayed where they were, maybe came a little bit closer to the centre, and the Conservatives is where they are. What annoys me about this whole agreement is, is not that they've done it, but what annoys me is they're not calling it a coalition, which is what it is. I mean, this is nonsense to say, oh, we're just power sharing. I mean, um, call it what it is and stop fooling us. Because that's what insults me more than anything. Okay, well, I mean, a, a classic coalition, the definition of that is like Jugmeet Singh would be a member of Trudeau's cabinet, right? You'd have NDP members of the cabinet. So that's why they say it's not a coalition. But David Creighton, your thoughts on that? Yeah, I think they should be calling what it is a coalition and go all the way with it instead of trying to have it both ways. That's exactly, and it's, it's a question of semantics. And, and let's call it a coalition government and let's in, invite the NDP to join the cabinet because that, this is what it is. And call it what it is. Joe, Joe, what do you think of that when people say it's a coalition? Well, I wish it was true. It's unfortunately not. <laughs> you know, Jagmeet Singh said he wasn't asked. Uh, and if he was, he would not have accepted. They are, the, the NDP is a party of opposition, will remain in opposition. All this is is they're agreeing to deliver on the policy pieces that are in the agreement. It's right there in black and white. It is about as transparent as government and politics can possibly okay. be. Uh, and I just, you know, I can't imagine a, a better example of democracy than this. Squeeze in another call. Dan on Vancouver Island. Hi, Dan. Go ahead. Yeah, deals happen, and that's fine, you know. But uh, I want to ask your friend from the left-wing side, uh, and I, just a simple question. Please answer my question. How are we going to pay for the dental program? It's a great program. It's needed. There's no doubt about it. But you and all your NDP friends 
Um, they're telling me, and I've called several MP offices, how are we going to pay for this program? And, and, uh, and the other thing I want you to tell me is how we're going to dig our ways out of this, this massive hole that we have, which is called the debt. Okay, Joe, how, where is the money coming for all this? Well, it's a fair question. I think we ought to ask it when people propose uh, tax cuts as well. We rarely do. So I think we have to be realistic about how the federal budget works. We've got to find the money. Of course, it's part of the deal. And the part of the deal is a fairer tax system, which will include creating tax on pandemic profiteers, which is another NDP policy platform piece. This deal will be this will be paid for. And at the, as a result, Canadians will have good dental care. I think it's a win win win. OK, David, that wasn't, think- an answer. that wasn't an answer. You're going to what? Well, you're going to tax the rich, are you? Well, it's part of the policy platform that we're going to find uh, ways to tax those who have uh, who have pan- profited off of the pandemic. David, so you're, you're, 30, going, to, you're going to tax the rich. You're going to drive every, all the higher income people out of the country. Are you? Well, that's you know we got to look at it. We have to work at how budgets work, and we have to think about how federal federal finance works. And that's not exactly how these things work. David. 